Well, for the scripture reading this morning, I'm going to start with what's actually the last verse that I quoted at the conclusion of last Sunday's message. It comes from John, um, chapter 19, verse 28 to 30. Later on, as the slide says, I'm going to quote from Mark, but right now we're going to read from John. So if you would, and if you're able, in the honor of the reading of God's word, would you please stand? Because this is Holy Scripture. Here now is the word of the Lord. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished, and to fulfill Scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, and they soaked a sponge in it and put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Please be seated. So I would like to begin with a quote here from a pastor named Dennis Davidson. Guys, I think you skipped a slide. I think it double jumped. There should be one with a quote there. If it isn't, interesting. Okay. Well, then I'll just read the quote, and that is, a pastor named Dennis Davidson worded it this way. It says, when I think of what happened on that day at the cross where our Lord Jesus was crucified 2,000 years ago, if I attempt to understand it, I feel rather inadequate, baffled by a mystery so vast, so deep, so high, so wondrous that it seems impossible to fully wrap my brain around it. Along with that sense of awe, there remains a mystery there, and this mystery grows in an increasing sense of its necessity, its perfection, and its eternal glory. Closed quote. I think he sums it up pretty well. And as I consider how best to teach the final message of this sermon series, I have to face a reality that we're hardly going to scratch the surface of this particular doctrine. But believing that Jesus' death on the cross was a full and complete payment for the sins of man that nothing more is owed or ever could be paid, this may be the key doctrine that separates churches like ourselves from churches that tend to stretch this understanding. Now, as I try to explain what and why this is important through this sermon series, is we have to remember these core doctrines are interconnected. They're interconnected. And the next slide here should say systematic, and I'm wondering whether you, whether you, uh, okay, that should be right. I was curious whether you pulled up the slideshow from the previous week. <laughs> so they're working on that. But let's talk about what systematic means. It means these doctrines are connected. Jesus truly paid the price fully and completely once and for all time, but that couldn't be true if he isn't who he says he is, the Son of God, fully man and fully God, the man who knew no sin, because he lived a perfect life and was born of a virgin, so he inherited no sin. Those two points that I make were the two previous messages in this series. We need to keep that in our mind as we begin this final message. This is what I mean by the term systematic. These core doctrines are interconnected. They, they resemble the spokes of a wheel. They're vital to the correct understanding of what we believe Scripture actually teaches and why we believe what we believe. So to further demonstrate this, I want to ask you to think of our famous bridge, the famous Mackinac Bridge. An unimportant, uninformed person might look at it and see all those cables above the roadway 
and all the structures underneath the roadway. And I could envision somebody thinking to themselves, is this really necessary? You can just picture a, a self-proclaimed know-it-all making a statement like, you know, that bridge looks to me like an awful lot of unnecessary duplication. Put me in charge, I'll show you how to cut out some of that waste. Now, I'm not mentioning any names, but you not only know the type, you're thinking of names right now. But an experienced engineer would say to them, rather bluntly, they would say, you're a fool. Every piece of hardware on that bridge is an essential piece of the design. The adjacent structures are weaker and more susceptible to failure without every piece of that design. Now, it's an imperfect analogy, but it reminds us that just as every cable and girder is necessary on our bridge so that it's strong and reliable under all weather conditions, in the same manner, these core doctrines of the faith are connected to the other core doctrines. When one of them is viewed less favorably, the others are weakened. That's why they're so important. They come right from Scripture, but they're like marker buoys. They're like marker buoys. They keep us from running aground while we navigate our daily walk of faith. So with that set of background information, let's think back to what the Bible teaches about what happened on the cross some 2,000 years ago. The sky darkened, and Jesus had said some Aramaic words. He'd been on the cross for several hours, and then he spoke these words, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You may remember a previous doctrine that says Jesus is fully God and fully man. When he says, why have you forsaken me, it's a statement of his full humanness. I mean, he knew why he was there. He knew what was going to happen. But nonetheless, he experienced fear, terrible pain, but I think even worse, he experienced the very human sense of betrayal from his own people. And in this particular moment, he also faced the reality that his heavenly father is allowing this to happen instead of intervening to prevent it. It's similar to a moment the night before he was crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prays, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nonetheless, not my will but thine be done. These are statements of Jesus' humanness. It's another example of that core doctrine that Jesus is fully God and fully man. So there are a few Roman soldiers and some of Jesus' closest followers that remain standing there at the cross. And as he nears death, he speaks one Greek word. One Greek word, tetelestai. It's typically translated into either it is finished or it is completed. And the significance of the term is the following, because of the particular tense it's written in. The price has been paid once and for all time. The effect takes place from that point forward, and no one in the future can come back and claim that more is owed. That's the significance of that particular use of the Greek tense, to telestai. A more practical way of translating the phrase is a three-word term, paid in full. In fact, they have found old ancient parchment and they looked at the writing on them and they realized this is a bill of sale. And on the bottom of the bill of sale was written the Greek word tetelestai, paid in full. So that gives you a little more of a depth of the significance of it. And that's when Jesus takes his last breath and he gives up his spirit. 
He's taken down from the cross and he's buried. And most people who were there that day thought that it was the end of the story and even his closest followers probably wondered whether they might be right. Even though Jesus said he would rise again in three days, his followers secretly wondered, could this really be the end? So with that in mind, for the next few minutes, let's take a look closely here at John 19, 28, a passage that we had read earlier. And it says the following, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst, or I am thirsty, is often how it's translated in modern translations. John's gospel is the only one of the four that mentions him being thirsty. He knew that the end was at hand. He knew his death was near. He's fully conscious. He's quite aware of all the details from the prophecies of the Old Testament. He had been there for several hours, and he experienced the full wrath of God as it was poured out on him for the collective sin of mankind, past, present, and future. And with his mind clear and his memory unimpaired, he knew there was only one prophetic passage remaining for him to fill. He had completed the payment for the sins of mankind, and now he could finally speak to his own need, a very human need. He was thirsty. Words spoken by his parched lips expressing his true physical and emotional condition at that moment. But what are these Old Testament prophecies that remained to be fulfilled? Well, let's look to the 69th Psalm. Two passages, verse 3. It says, I am weary of my crying, my throat is dry, mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. And verse 21, they gave me also gall for my food, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Written hundreds of years before the cross, these passages from John 19, 29 have Jesus offering, I think, a pretty clear reference to those two passages from the 69th Psalm. See, on the cross, on that rocky hill, the cry of thirst from Jesus, quite honestly, is somewhat remarkable because it comes from the very Jesus who previously had said to the woman at the well, anyone who drinks of the water I give will never thirst. Here he is, the source of living water, and yet he is now the one who thirsts in his last moment on the cross. Now think about that for a moment. He thirsted so that he could redeem us from eternal thirst. It's a contrast we might not have expected, but it paints another picture. It paints another picture of the way in which he who knew no sin became sin for you and for me. So given all these observations, I hope we can see how Scripture is emphasizing Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross was a full and complete payment for the collective sin of humanity. To suggest more is needed contradicts Scripture but it also denies Jesus is who he says he is. So it really is that big of an issue. Jesus paid it all. Nothing more is owed. The work that he was sent to do has been accomplished. It is finished. Scripture is affirmed at the cross. But the next point is the suffering that he went through. It involved an unimaginable amount of pain. His loss of blood, his exposure to the elements, generated this raging thirst. And it was the completion of when Jesus spoke of this in verse 29. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, 
and put it on a hyssop branch and put it to his mouth. That's referencing Psalm 69.21 that we read a moment ago, but there's something else at work here, something very subtle. Putting the vinegar-soaked sponge on the end of a stalk of a hyssop plant has an important connection to something else in the Old Testament. Anybody know what it is? The Passover. Exodus 12. It was the stalk of the hyssop plant that they used to brush the lamb's blood on the door frames of the Israelites. It's a subtle and an often missed detail. Jesus is the true lamb of God. It's a direct connection between the cross and the Passover, one of those events that pointed to the coming of the cross. Through the cross, the judgment of God passes over us, which we would face without Jesus having gone to the cross. Now let's take a look at this vinegar in that sponge. Jesus drank from vinegar in a sponge in verse 29, but it shouldn't be confused with Mark 15, 23, where it describes a different drink, wine mixed with myrrh. That was offered to him just before they put him on the cross. It was a sedative drink. It was intended to dull the senses of the victim, give them at least some relief from their agony. But when he was offered that wine mixed with myrrh just before they put him on the cross, he refused. He chose to be fully conscious when he bore the punishment for your sin and for my sin. Now, let's talk a little bit about the other views on this. We need to be fair, because there are branches of Christianity that at least imply that Christ's death wasn't fully atoning. I think they would say, now that's not fair to say that. They would say his death was fully atoning for original sin, meaning Adam's sin. But they would say our personal sins during our lives are so deep that we need ongoing booster shots, infusions of grace, if you will. Those are the branches of Christianity that tend to believe that taking the sacraments, doing the good works, going to church services, and all those activities are part of this ongoing infusion of God's grace to keep us in a state of grace, to keep us in a saved state. And I have to admit, they don't take sin lightly. I will give them that. But while they don't realize it, I think there is a strong implication that somehow or another, our standing before God is at risk that we're going to lose that standing because somehow our sin remains greater than Christ's payment on the cross. And there's tension on this issue. And it is one of the core differences between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. I personally believe the best biblical understanding is that Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross paid it all. Nothing more is or ever could be owed. Now, in churches that can trace their development to some aspect of the Protestant Reformation, they're more rooted in this concept of the full and complete payment, the fully atoning death of Christ on the cross. Within Protestantism, we have different understandings of how that functions. But pretty much, people who are Protestants of one form or another believe in salvation by grace through faith, not of works. And here's the key. We would say that good works are the indicators of receiving the gift of salvation, but they are not the method of receiving the gift of salvation. A subtle but very important difference. So let's go back to John 19. And here in John 19, in the final moments of the cross, Jesus wet his parched, 
mouth and lips so that he could speak loudly enough to ensure that not only was he heard then, but it was recorded and that we hear him today. The description of his suffering is followed by the declaration of his victory. And when he had finished the sour wine in verse 29, he said, to Telestai, it is finished, it is completed. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He who knew no sin had been made sin for us. In this sense, he took our place. He paid the bill that we couldn't pay. We owed a debt we could never pay. He paid a debt he didn't owe. But he did it willingly, faithfully, in full submission to his heavenly Father. Salvation was and is achieved. The payment has already been made. Nothing else is required or even possible. We just need to be ready and willing to believe it and receive it. So let's wrap this up. Today in the world of millions of people, they seek a sense of peace for their eternal destination too. But many, particularly the other world religions, have not accepted that salvation is already accomplished for them. In many world religions, the people work and sacrifice. They do things hoping that somehow or another they will earn the favor of the being that they understand is their God. But I once heard it worded this way. All the world religions teach do. They say, do this, do this, do this, and then in the end, perhaps the deity will accept you. In a stark contrast to that, Christianity doesn't teach do. Christianity teaches done. It is finished. And that is the doctrine of the fully atoning crucifixion of Christ on the cross. There's just one more thing. When we say God's gift of salvation is free, we need to realize something. It is freely available to us, but like all things that are labeled as free, it means someone else paid for it. It is given freely to all who will receive it. The question should not be whether he paid the price in full. The question should be, do you believe it? Have you received it? Have you faced the reality that you and I are sinners? And we can never be made right before God without the fully atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that is why he paid the price fully and completely, because he is the only one who could pay it. I'll just use this analogy. I'll borrow it from the airlines. The fare has been paid, the entry ramp is still open, and the only remaining question is, do you have your boarding pass? Do you have your boarding pass? So with that in mind, we're going to sing the closing hymn. It's number 218 for those of you who are going to use the hymnals. Jesus paid it all. I ask you to please stand as we sing our closing hymn, and then I'll wrap up by running through all the core doctrines very quickly to remind us of how they're connected together. <laughs>